All right, so we are now in a position to begin the Iowa City City Council work session for Tuesday, July the 2nd, 2019. Uh, for the information of people watching on TV and people present in the room, I need to report that Mazair Saleh once again will not be present. She's still in Sudan. We've had some communications with her, but they've been fitful. We don't really know what her situation is right at this very moment, but she will not be participating, uh, you know, via the telecommunication system tonight. And we certainly hope that she is well. Okay, so our first topic for tonight's work session is an update on climate action activities, including a review of emission data post-Mid-American and UI University of Iowa investments and state law limitations on certain actions. So we've received some information that appears in our information packet, the most recent one that we received on Thursday. But the staff is going to begin, I think Brenda is going to start by making a presentation, a PowerPoint presentation about what our emissions situation is, what's been done so far, what's currently scheduled, and that kind of thing. And then I'll ask Eleanor to brief us on the, um, the state energy code and how it relates to new buildings and what our authority is and is not. After that, we'll open things up for questions to the staff and dive more deeply into the whole topic. So, Brenda? Good evening. Good evening. Brenda Nation, Sustainability Coordinator. Um, I've been asked to give a brief uh, presentation about some of our most recent climate data that we've been working on and an update on what the city's been doing in order to give you more detailed information uh, so you can have your discussion tonight. Um, so Iowa City has been working on climate action and sustainability for quite some time, but we really stepped it up uh, when the mayor signed the U.S. Compact of Mayors Agreement back in 2016, and we've been um, coordinating our efforts uh, more intensely sin since that time over the last three years. Uh, we also got a four-star rating with the STAR Community Rating System that showed that we needed, uh, we scored very well, but we needed uh, to work on our climate actions, and then in December of 2016, uh, the City Council set targets, uh, carbon uh, emissions targets for us, which kicked off uh, creating a plan to get to those targets um, that took a year and a half, and it was completed in September of 2018. Um, the plan uh, was intended to be updated about every five years. Uh, we have tracking tools to give an annual update. It's been nine months since we completed the plan, and we hope to be giving an um, update uh, that will be available to the public in about three months to show what we've done in the last uh, year. We also have a community toolkit that's online so people can um, look at best practices on how they can reduce energy in their home and at their work. And we also have some um, back data on uh, how to track some calculations and scientific um, uh, efforts on how to calculate these so we know how to get to the goals. Um, the plan had um, community input. We had a community steering committee that was created to help uh, create the plan. Plan. We had stakeholder engagement before we started. We had two uh, public meetings that had about 100 people each, and we had a survey that 
that included over 800 responses. So we had uh, roughly about 1,000 uh, people give input on the plan because we wanted to be uh, relevant to what we could do in Iowa City. So as far as the um, target goes, um, Iowa City adopted the uh, Paris Agreement targets. Uh, I'm sure uh, the mayor remembers that we went and discussed uh, what some options would be with Dr. Jerry Schnorr. And at the time, um, he recommended, and it was best recommended by the ICP, IPCC, um, the agreement set by our country at that time, which is 25 to 28 percent by 2025 and 80 percent by 2050, and that's from 2005 levels. So, through, so we adopted our plan in September 2000, um, to just last year, nine months ago, and then three months later, the IPCC came out with a new recommendation of 45. Um, percent by 2030 and 100% by 2050. So that happened just three weeks after we completed our plan. So um, so the uh, idea of getting to 100% in 31 years is going to take transformative change. I mean, if you think about getting off all of fossil fuels in in 31 years, we're talking about um, major change, not by just the city, but by everybody in the community. So this is the data that we've been working with. We um, calculate our greenhouse gas inventory in-house. We use the um, most up-to-date global protocol standard um, um, that's recent. We back-calculated all our, our uh, uh, prior years so that it's uh, comparable to the new standard. And so we have 11 consecutive years of data to look at our greenhouse um, Gases, so we can uh, we've been monitoring them. Although you monitor, you can monitor the data. It's no guarantee about um, what you do, but you can make better decisions on uh, where your emissions are and what and what to do about it. Uh, you can see the top red line is the baseline emissions from 2005, and the next dashed yellow line is the. 20, um, the, the 2025 target that was in the plan, and then the darker line is the um, uh, projected 45% reduction should you choose to do that. Um, and then the lower line is the 80% reduction. Um, you can see that we're ahead of schedule and we are currently at 21% reduction from our 2005 levels. Um, the, the last year um, that we have calculated, it takes about, um, it takes six months after a calendar year to get all the data to calculate. And you see that we had a little uh, blip up in 2018. Uh, the reason for that is that we had um, some uh, climate extremes. We had colder, um, colder winters and warmer summers, and we'll probably, uh, with the work that we've been doing, that we are expected to see more of those. So um, you can see that they do vary through the years, but it's, it's going to get hotter and will require more electricity and it'll get colder too, so we'll require more heating. So we also um, conduct a um, 
community, uh, our citywide, our city operations greenhouse gas emissions. So we want to know what our uh, operations uh, have to do with this too. And so our city operations, so that includes our landfill, wastewater, all of the things that we own and control are 4.5% of the community-wide emissions. So while it's important for us to track that and we have a responsibility for that, 95.5% of our emissions are community-wide, so from other people. So we're going to need uh, community involvement to, uh, to attack those 95% of the emissions, and that's what the plan was meant to address. So in our municipal emissions, um, this is from 2015. We don't do these as often, but you can see that our landfill methane um, from the landfill that we own and operate that accepts waste from the entire county is over half of our um, municipal emissions. And so uh, we are currently working on a, a methane uh, study to look at, look at those. Um, wastewater is our largest facility uh, emissions at 15% and water the water plant is 5.7. So for uh, water use in the city to uh, clean and uh, the water it takes, um, our, those are our largest emissions for our facilities. Our other buildings are about 12%. Um, so we track we um, track our energy data for all of our facilities. So we have about 300 um, accounts for natural gas and electricity. And um, this is a lot of information on this slide, but it shows that uh, we are uh, we're constantly looking at the amount of uh, natural gas and electricity in our own buildings, and we spend about over two million dollars on. Uh, utility cost in our facilities. Um, note that the landfill, while it's the methanes are the largest, the methane emissions are the largest uh, emitter. That's in the production of methane from the waste, not the buildings. And so the facility itself hardly uses uh, any compared to other buildings. So these are our top 10 uh, facilities and the amount of uh, natural gas and energy use that they use. Uh, we have done improvements and we continue to do improvements on all of these. Um, the, we are looking into uh, the senior center and doing improvements on those, um, but we have been uh, working on continuing to improve the efficiency of our own buildings. And we have a new software uh, that makes it easier to use this, to, to look at these, and we're hoping to share it with our facility managers as well. So for our community emissions overview, um, we have two charts here. Um, the, the first one on the left shows the source. And so the sources of our, in 2018, our most current year, the source of our emissions, the majority comes from electricity. So 46% of all of our emissions within our city limits come from electricity, while 29% come from natural gas. Um, 7% comes from the just the coal from the power plant, and then uh, transportation is 16%, with waste for Iowa City residents um, being 2%. So that's where our emissions are com come from. So the, the city can't regulate um, uh, electricity and natural gas that um, it's up to the Iowa Utility Board to do that, and we also can't regulate the University of Iowa power plant. So, but we can have some impact on some of those things. So the, the chart on the right 
is um, the by sector, and so you can see that most of our most of our emissions comes from our buildings, and so we have um, industrial, commercial. Uh, residential, uh, the U of University of Iowa power plant, and transportation. And so <clears throat> uh, we have a limited ability to regulate consumption and efficiency, but we need to get community action for those areas for uh, businesses, industries, and uh, residential. So <clears throat> our plan is, is made up of five different sections. Um, and the first one is buildings. So buildings uh, take up a lot, uh, the majority of our emissions. They are responsible for a majority of our emissions. Um, what the city has done, I'm just going to go over a brief overview of all the five sections about some of the activities that we have um, done since the creation of the planner in the last few years. Um, we have had uh, city rehab um, energy audits on our city rehab projects. Um, we have a Mid-American team, it's our third year, and they're working on uh, energy audits around the city. We have energy efficiency grants. Um, we've helped uh, try to support funding for the Johnson Clean Energy District, um, which is um, offshoot of uh, some members of our steering committee that have gotten together with some other members of the community, and they're gonna be working on energy efficiency in residential to start with and, and get the word out on that. Uh, we have some other grants, uh, including air source heat pump grants to um, uh, Habitat for Humanity, and air source, air source heat pumps are a way to offset natural gas, and they're gonna um, report back to us on how those work in, in our climate. We're also installing solar arrays at the new public works facility. Um, we're, we're, we've been talking with Mid-American Energy about community solar, and we've done improvements on our buildings, including uh, uh, converting um, bulbs to LEDs and our streetlights to LEDs. Uh, I mentioned our energy tracking software. Um, with our streetlights converting to LEDs, because um, Mid-American knew that we are committed to reducing um, our greenhouse gas emissions, we were the first city in Iowa for them to start working with the ones that they own to convert, uh, to convert those. Um, our staff is also tracking the progress on the state energy code, and um, we're following the new, uh, what's gonna be required for us moving forward. Um, and our current uh, inspections require verifications, but we're also looking into um, up upgrading that in the future if, if, um, if necessary. Let's see. Uh, for transportation, which is the second category in the plan, um, the city has a goal of double, doubling our ridership in our transit buses, and uh, we have a pending grant for four electric buses. Um, we also have been changing out our own fleet to electric vehicles and uh, hybrids. Uh, yesterday we just found out a grant, I'm very excited about this, we just found out that we're receiving a grant uh, from the Iowa Economic Development Authority, um, Iowa Energy Office, to work with um, other cities in eastern Iowa on creating an EV readiness plan. And so that includes Quad Cities, Cedar Rapids, Dubuque, Waterloo and us. And so we're working with the MPOs in the other cities um, to get baseline and how to move forward as a regional group um, to promote electric vehicles. 
We have many bicycle initiatives, um, installing bike lanes, bike share program. We've supported projects for immigrant and low income populations as well as seniors, and we have educational series on biking. Um, we're also monitoring our own city fuel by um, revising our routes, and also um, we just passed an idling policy. The third category is waste. We've done a lot in this category. Um, we've just rolled out new recycling carts, multifamily recycling, um, and increased and started our curbside recycling. Um, the chart here on the right shows that we've had an increase of recycling already this year, and our curbside composting has gone up as well. Uh, we have new positions in refuse and landfill for staffing, more staffing needs in this area. Um, we've issued a few grants. We've done a consumption-based inventory. Um, we've done several things, um, other things, including our, our cardboard ban has been really successful. Um, we have, um, and we're, as I said earlier, we're conducting the study on methane. So um, working a lot in the waste category as well. For climate adaptation, um, we uh, are fortunate to be one of the seven cities across the country to receive an Urban Sustainability Directors Network grant to, to get an equity fellow to work with us this summer. And she's working with us on climate adaptation and those that are affected the most because uh, due to climate changes. Um, and she's going to be having a report that's, that's due at, at the end of the summer. Um, we've also done, been working with the, um, the county emergency management mitigation plan. We just um, approved that. And we have staffing in this area too with stormwater and uh, assistant park superintendent. Uh, natural areas management we're working on, which is an important aspect of adaptation because of uh, stormwater invasive species and trees, uh, other things like that. And we've received grants and completed a plan. Uh, we're working on invasive species removal. And we're in, uh, our, we're working with other cities on soil protection program. And um, we also have been planting in the last three years trees on our, on our property. Uh, sustainable lifestyle is the last section uh, in this section. Uh, oh, I, me I meant to mention that the numbers th that are at the end in parentheses are correlate to the numbers in the plan. Um, we've so these are, these are the um, actions that we've taken according to the numbers that according to the actions in the in the plan. So that we've created um, garden plots. We have a the grant to the food hub. We have grants. We have uh, several different grants or climate grants that have gone to local foods and encouraging those within uh, the community. Uh, we've um, we're working on our communications efforts. Um, uh, we're working with the Climate Advisory Board, of course, and they also have communication plan. And we're working on a sustainability recognition program um, to help businesses try and get to, um, to more sustainable business, especially related to energy. And we're hoping to release that by the end of 2019. So we have been working with university partners to get to the to to create a climate festival that we hope to hold uh, for the community in 2020. So the numbers. Um, so if you recall that that 95% of the community wide, that's that's the important part, and that's what we're going to need to get to. 
So we've already gotten 21% reduction. And so um, if we look at our baseline from 2005, um, and we've gotten to 21% uh, reduction already, uh, we only need 2% a year to get to 45% reduction. So we created a scenario that's not, um, that's just a hypothetical scenario of a reasonable plan of attack um, to see if we could get, get to there. Um, MidAmerican has um, proposed that they will be getting to 100% renewable electricity for Iowa customers um, by the end of next year. So in a year and a half, uh, we'll know what what amount that they reduce. And so um, just to be conservative, we added 85% uh, to see what that added up in case that it's slower than um, suggested or that it, they don't go to 100%. Uh, if the University of Iowa, they made a formal commitment to get off coal at the power plant, 100% um, by 2025. Um, we don't know at this point whether they're going to be um, replacing coal with natural gas. Um, but if they reduce their coal emissions by 50%, um, by we added that as a part of the reduction in this scenario. So for building retrofits and electrification that would replace natural gas, uh, if you recall, natural gas is 29% of our total emissions, but if we were able to reduce just 20% of that, um, that is the number 58,000, and these numbers are in um, metric tons and CO2e. And so if we were able to get to that amount um, in natural gas, uh, which is pretty conservative and, and um, uh, the numbers on the right are the numbers that would remain after those reductions. So if we, inc if we increased uh, transit ridership and reduced our transportation emissions by 10% um, uh, in this scenario, and then also reduced mis mi our methane emissions at the landfill by just 50%, uh, if we add up all of those totals for, for that scenario, we would get to well over 45%. And so um, assuming that our partners in, in MidAmerican and um, the university were able to do some, we would still need to do some of these things um, in, to, to focus on these three main areas. Um, our existing building stock, um, our existing building stock is um, our most efficient way to look at our emissions for natural gas and for energy efficiency. So we need to look at natural gas replacement and electric uh, vehicle adoption. So the city, as I have said, has budgeted some additional staff in some of those categories. Uh, we're going to continue to work on our own building efficiency and performance, transportation, uh, with a focus on equity. And in the future, we um, could look at more detailed energy code inspections and building incentive incentives. Um, that, as you know, the city can't do it by, by ourselves. We're just 4.5% of the emissions. And so the community, uh, we need to work um, we need to work with the private sector and we need to work with um, a wide variety of uh, partnerships um, to get there. We work with the Climate Action Advisory Board and their um, recommendation is that we work um, externally as well and to connect, connect with um, external partners. Um, and they would are thinking about a possible shift to a formal commission. 
um, and the climate strikers have requested three different things, uh, emergency declaration, revising the plan targets, and additional staff. So it's clear that we need to do more, for, especially if we're going to get to uh, higher targets, and to work with the community is one of the ways that we can do that. Uh, this word cloud is from uh, example of 40 different community partners that we would need to work with and, and focus on. So with the plan, it's, it's a framework. There's no finite end. The IPCC targets are going to change probably often and vary. Our own emissions are going to change and vary. And so the plan is very adaptable. It's the, the numbers that we have are get to get to 80% reduction. And the, the main point is that we need to strengthen our partnerships to get there and to work on those uh, key things. Um, we hope to plant seeds, uh, plant grant funds to help seed working with the community. And um, it's just really partnerships to get to that transformative change. Thank you. Thank you, Brenda. We'll have questions for you in a few minutes. But uh, before asking Eleanor to talk about new buildings, I want to acknowledge the presence of at least six members of our Climate Action Advisory Board. I want to thank them for their past work. Uh, when they, Most of you are on the steering committee, if not all of you. And thank you for coming here tonight, too. Eleanor, can you bring us up to date on whether we can adopt more stringent energy standards than the states um, for new buildings. Just to summarize uh, quickly, when I initially looked at the um, provisions in the state code, I saw fairly um, uh, strong preemption statements in the state code. Um, and I can go through that analysis if you want me to. Um, it's all in the memo. Um, as there was discussion about it, and we saw that both Dubuque and Des Moines had adopted energy codes, or international energy codes that were later additions than have been adopted by the state. The state has adopted the 2012, and they have adopted the 2015, um, to the extent that they're more stringent than the 2012 code. Um, it made us question that conclusion. Um, and so we were communicating, or other staff was communicating with the state anyway and was um, about what their plans are for adoption of the 2018 um, International Energy Code. And I asked them to inquire about what the state, or at least their contacts at the state, thought about the preemption issue. And the original take we got on it was, well, they thought we could do it. Um, we could adopt more strict requirements, but um, they would get an opinion from their attorney. Subsequent to that, I communicated, as I stated in the memo, with general counsel for the um, Department of Public Safety. Um, and she looked at the provisions and also communicated with the building code commissioner. And they were both of the opinion that we were um, that we were preempted. Now, I would not typically rely on a state actor to tell me what or rely on the opinion for preemption from a state actor. But my hope had been when we got that initial feedback that perhaps they knew something I didn't. Um, if they saw it differently then, and the state wasn't going to give us trouble, then um, we could rely on that. But that did not turn out to be the case. Um, just generally, there is a provision in the, in the state code that says um, 
uh, cities can adopt standards and requirements that are um, more stringent than those adopted by the state, but not that are less stringent, which is, I, I think, maybe where that thinking was coming from. Um, but that is as long as um, another law doesn't provide otherwise. And I think the provisions of uh, Chapter 103A, first the provision that deals with single family housing, single family, two family construction, and then the other provision that deals with um, all new construction um, are such other provisions, particularly when you look at the, the legislative history of those provisions, how they were amended, the language that they replaced, which um, did what we would hope. Um, and um, then I, finally, I gave you the provision that the bill that was proposed in 2018 um, that would have allowed us to adopt more stringent requirements that was not passed. Okay, so I'm going to read one sentence out of the email from uh, the, the Department of Public Safety's General Counsel's Office, Attorney Catherine M. Lucas. It's a very short paragraph, but the, it ends, the city of Iowa City cannot legally adopt anything other than the state energy code. So, I mean, it just repeats what you've told us, but it's a very concise way of repeating it. So that's important for us to know, and it's important for the public to know. Now, what I'm thinking is that we've, we've gotten a, a very valuable presentation from Brenda, and I think we need to have an opportunity to ask Brenda and Eleanor and Jeff, whoever, questions about what we have done, what we are planning to do. When I say we, I mean the city. What we have done, what we are planning to do. Just ask questions about that uh, without making claims about what we ought to be doing differently in the future. We can get to that in a, in a few minutes, but uh, let's just start with questions. So why don't we start with you, Rockney, and just come work our way down. I, I think the first question I have relates to Dubuque and Des Moines. So is the DPS commissioner or the chief counsel going to sue them? I, I mean, I don't understand how they were able to adopt a more stringent standard. I can't answer that question. Um, and, and I don't think you should assume that when they did so that they got a legal opinion. Okay. Um, as far as I know, the Dubuque and Des Moines city attorneys have not provided a formal legal opinion. Um, in fact, when I, in my informal discussions with them, when I originally started looking at this issue, they were of the same mind that I was. Um, so I can't tell you what, I mean, when I asked uh, Ms. Lucas about that and she said, they can't do that. What they're what they're going to do about that, if anything, I don't know. My guess is nothing, since the state is getting ready to adopt the 2018 um, okay. code, and they'll be in compliance. That was my primary question. Okay, John, do you have any specific questions you want to ask? Well, I, I did the, this question of what would be allowed under the um, if if the state were to adopt the 2018 addition of the International Energy Conservation Code is, would that get us where we want to go? I'm not familiar with what that code would allow. I can't speak to the technical requirements <clears throat> of the 2018 code. Um, I can, I, Tim Hennis did ask kind of generally what, um, 
what they thought the difference was between the 2015 and the 2018. And if, if you want to move on for a minute, I can okay. find out what that was. It was six percent, something in that in that range. I can follow up on that just a little bit. I'm no expert on that either. I understand from talking with Martha off and on over the years that each succeeding revision to the code is stricter with regard to energy efficiency, stricter with regard to carbon emissions, and so on. So if it's not true, shake your head that way, but I understand that's true. They're, they do it every three years, so the next one's going to come out in 2021. And I, I should tell you that I was asked by people at the U.S. Conference of Mayors whether I would be willing to co-sign, not co-sign, co-sponsor uh, a really aggressive version of what would be adopted in 2021 because there are ways of trying to influence uh, those standards. I talked with Jeff about it some. I talked with Eleanor about it by email, anyhow. and. They said, sure, there's no reason why you shouldn't co-sponsor that. So I did. Uh, it, I presume it will be considerably more stringent than, well, not considerably, more stringent than the 2018 version, which is more stringent than the 2015, which is more stringent than the 2012, and so on. Will it get us where we want to go? It's a track. Mm -hmm. It's not an endpoint. So... Um what Tim was told by his contact at the at DPS, who's Dave Ruffcorn, construction energy engineer, is that residential would be 6% plus or minus more restrictive than the 2012 code, and commercial would be 8% more restrictive than the 2012 code. That, that you're talking about 2018 relative to the 2012? 2018 relative yeah. to 2012. Okay. You have other questions, John? No. Susan? No. Pauline? Just to clear it up, Eleanor, um, is it possible to like encourage or suggest without crossing the line of requiring the stricter codes, like with new developments? I mean, maybe not going so far as into putting it into CZA, but uh, at least encouraging them, like when we're discussing it with them for rezonings or, or developments. Can we at least suggest or encourage well, stronger, you, stricter standards? Sir, you can suggest and encourage all you want, you, but you have the ability. But when it comes to the regulations that the city can enforce, obviously that's right. whatever energy code is applicable. Along those lines, is there any way that we could do citywide tax abatement for people that wanted to do adaptation, like solar infrastructure on commercial buildings or for residential? Could that be a citywide program for tax abatement? I think that has possibilities. I mean, I, the incentives are a whole different issue than regulation. Okay. I mean, really, I mean it, okay. yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking we can get into that more deeply after we just ask these preliminary questions. Yeah, that's yeah. asking the question. All right. It's, um, I guess from your report and, and definitely the, the mayor's reading of the, the one line from the state, um, it seemed a little contra con contradictory to me. Um, whereas, of course, as um, Rockney pointed out, Des Moines and Dubuque, they were able to do the 2015 and the 2018 is, of course, um, present now. Um, but I thought I heard you say at one point that we can have a more stringent requirements. Is that correct? 
Um, I was quoting a provision of the home rule sections of the state code, which there's a general provision that says um, cities can't do something less restrictive, but they can do something more restrictive. But there's a provision in there that says, unless another law provides otherwise, and that's what you have here. Okay. And I think that'll be a little difficult to navigate uh, with other laws because I don't know how we would figure out what other laws could be in, in opposition because there's a lot of laws um, if we were to create something. No, the, the, what they mean by other laws of the state that would prohibit us even from doing something stricter. And in this case, we have other laws of the state that prohibit us from doing something stricter. Okay, awesome. Um, and then I know that uh, we received kind of a projection from Brenda with, you know, how can we meet the 45% reduction goal by 2030? And I think um, when I look at this, I know one of the um, observations is that we've been relying on mid-American energy as a part of our reduction. Um, and so even though this exceeds 45%, I do wonder about what happens, to, you know, towards 2050. Because between 2030 and 2050, that's only going to be 20 years. And I'm assuming that there's going to be more requirements set on the community. And so on one level, I, I think this is great. But I, I kind of like to begin with the end in mind, what that looks like for 2050. Um, because if there's more community involvement, I think I would like to see what that, how can we incorporate some of those things now? Um, so that it's not so overwhelming in 20 years for individuals. Um, so I think that was my, you know, questions or observations there. Okay, I'd like to ask, draw attention to one chart and then ask questions about another chart. So could you go back, Brenda, and, and pull up the community emissions overview of the two pie charts? Yeah, starting with the one on the left, I just want to make sure people understand the, what I'm going to, what that chart tells us. So the 46% on the right, which you label electricity, that means electricity generated primarily by Mid-American at its plants all around its uh, service area. Is that correct? Yes, and the, the way that we calculate the mid-American electricity, well, I should just point out, we have a small, very small amount from another uh, provider, but it's like 0.5%, so that's why we're not addressing them. They also have some uh, renewable energy. But the 46% is from um, Iowa City users in all of our buildings uh, for mid-American energy, and the way that we calculate it is that uh, conversion factor that we use from the, that we get from them, that what they're counting is that the energy provided to Iowa customers. Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. So the light and the air conditioning that we're feeling right now in this room is being generated by Mid-American somewhere at, at its plants, wind, or, wind turbines, coal plants, whatever. Right. All right. 
And the same is true for all our residential buildings or, and mm -hmm. commercial buildings and all that kind of stuff. Yes, the only exception would be the university and some of their buildings are from their power plant and cogeneration and they get some electricity from yeah. that. Okay, the next is the 29% having to do with natural gas. Mm -hmm. uh, that's primarily natural gas used to heat buildings. Correct. Residential, commercial, institutional. Yes. So it's primarily it's how we heat, and it comes from Mid-American, is that correct? Also comes from Mid-American. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, those are, I think those are really crucial points to understand because, because of some things that have been written and said. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so th there's that. And the, a crucial deduction one can derive from that is that there's no way on earth we're going to achieve our carbon emission reduction goals, even the ones that the ones we've already adopted, unless Mid-American changes the way it generates electricity, and unless we somehow reduce our use of natural gas, we meaning the people of Iowa City and businesses, and unless the University of Iowa. Uh, reduces its use of coal and hopefully gets away from natural gas too, right? We You're cannot unless those things happen. Okay, so can you turn to back now several slides to the, the one about recent annual emission trends? Because this troubles me a lot. I've talked with Jeff about it several times and we've had email exchanges about it and everything. So the first thing that troubles me is the drop between 2014 and 2015. It's completely inexplicable just by looking at the graph. I'm not, you know, and then there's stuff, there's background information. You, I think you've referred to how MidAmerican has made a decision about, um, I think it's reserving uh, uh, renewable energy credits Right. for its Iowa customers. Right. Um, before 2015, they were able to sell RECs, or renewable energy credits, to other people outside the state. And in 2015, they weren't able to do that anymore. So when they, we were receiving some uh, wind energy before that, but we couldn't claim it because other people were paying for those RECs and they were claiming it elsewhere. And so even though we may have been getting um, wind energy or renewable electricity, other people were, were buying it to claim it. And we could not. Um, the Iowa Utilities Board made that uh, uh, pass on to the, in the 2015 that they couldn't do that anymore. So the electricity that we're getting uh, for the last four years have been the renewable energy that's created within the Iowa that is can't be purchased outside. Okay, so of the, the big reduction between 2014 and 2015 is a result of uh, a legal or administrative decision is not the result of a dramatic reduction in their carbon emissions. It's it's mainly due from the added wind energy that they've, they've they, in the past few years, they've purchased wind turbines and it's their source of, of but it's but it's from their wind energy. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, right I, I, I don't mean to be criticizing mid-American because they have made a big shift to wind. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not denying that. It's important. I'm really pleased that they've done that. But I, what I am drawing attention to is the fact that they did not make a sudden reduction in carbon emissions between 2014 and 2015. 
as they, a they, they use as a company in all of the states that they have energy. You're saying. I'm saying as a physical fact, between 2014 and 2015, they did not reduce their carbon emissions by that amount. If, because there's. I think it's confusing because yeah. Mid-American owns and operates a lot of um, energy in a lot of different states, not just Iowa. In Iowa, they have focused on putting more wind turbines, and it doesn't mean that they don't have coal fire plants in other states. They, they do have coal fire plants in, in other states, but they focus their wind energy in Iowa and they're committing to 100% of wind energy for electricity for the Iowa customers in the state of Iowa. That's what we do our greenhouse gas inventory on. And so what they do outside the state and doesn't affect the electricity that we get in Iowa City. Well, they do have coal outside of Iowa City. Okay. Um, so I think that the, the emissions factor that we use to calculate our, to get this is from the electricity that we get in the state of Iowa for Iowa customers. That's why it went down. I think it deserves more careful analysis, but I hear your point. That, but the other next thing I want to draw attention to is the increase in total emissions from 2016 2018. There's been a, just a steady, very small, but steady increase. And I know there's fluctuation in the past, there'll probably be fluctuation in the future, but the downward trend is what we need, not a slow increase. So that worries me. You know, I'm doing my job up here. It just worries right. me that we're, we're saying that we've, we're already, we've already reduced carbon emissions by 21% and therefore we're very close to achieving our 2025 goal. I'm not persuaded that we're going to get there. So you can see in the other years between, say, 2009 and 2010, we went up, but then we went down again. A lot of that has to do with temperature variations. And we, we will see, to your point, we will see more extreme temperatures and we'll need more heating and we'll need more cooling. So we'll need more. We also have a growing population. So those points are well taken. And, but it will vary. Our emissions will vary um, in time. And it hasn't, um, our, at the university, we do get the numbers from them as well. And they have been reducing their coal. And so those numbers are real as well. So the numbers included in the DIP, um, the University of Iowa power plant um, does have, provide their numbers of how much coal that they use, and there has been a reduction in that as well. So yeah, it's those two to things together. Yeah, I'm very pleased to hear that. Okay, so I'd, there's no need to elaborate on the points. I'd, those are concerns I have, and I wanted to make sure that they were articulated. Okay, so thanks for the presentation for sure, Brenda, and for responding to the questions. You brought up an interesting point though, Jim. I mean, when we when we look at the reductions and you have the baseline, from what you've said, Brenda, then there is no, there's no adjustment in terms of population shifts to what the goals are for a community. I mean, once you set that baseline, I mean, if you get a, over that period of time, if your population grows by 50% or 100% over all those years, there's still, like with the IPCC, there's really no adjustment in your goals? Correct. Or? And Iowa City is growing, and we've taken the population growth into account and projected that into 2050 in our plan. Okay. 
So, and we also calculate per capita to see how much our emissions are per person to see how that's doing. So, okay. thank you. Okay, so now we I have should. one question for Brenda. Oh, sure. Do you know how many municipalities, um, both in the state of Iowa as well as throughout the United States, have adopted the IPCC standard? Um, since it just came out a few months ago, I know a lot of cities already have plans, but I think that some cities are adopting um, more strict standards, but it would all be within the last few months. And so um, I know Columbia, Missouri just um, finished their plan, and I'm not sure if they did, but it would only be anybody that's created or finished a plan um, within the past uh, few months, although it's possible, obviously, to go to stricter target emissions even after you've d adopted a plan. So I I don't, I don't know, I can't tell you offhand, but I think some uh, cities are more stringent than, than before it came out, and some cities may already have um, higher reduction targets even before that happened, like I think Fort Collins, for example. Okay, I'd like to suggest, if, if this is all right with you, I mean, we're a council, so you tell me if it's okay. Uh, I'd like to suggest we ask a couple broader questions that we need to answer that nobody else can answer, just us. Like, and the first one would be, it comes from our climate strikers, should we declare a climate emergency? So I'm wondering what you all think about that. Well, my, my response to that is that there's clearly, in my view, a need to declare something. What we call it, I think, is is one of the questions. And you know, I sent all of you a, a draft of if we were to consider a resolution with with respect to this declaration. That uh, my suggestion would be calling a declaration over a climate crisis rather than a climate emergency. I mean, I, it's not something in my mind that's. I, th I think it's it's important insofar as to me it has a, a better it better reflects I think what we're attempting to do and what it is re we're responding to. Um, I don't think it's the, the most critical thing we'll be talking about tonight, but it 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 was something that I'm seeing. There is an acknowledgement that we need to describe climate change as something uh, clearer in terms of its urgency. And climate crisis seems to be the phrase that has been identified or is being used uh, as we move forward on these questions of how to respond to this situation. So personally, I prefer the idea of calling, if we were to make a declaration, a declaration of climate crisis. I, I think we should declare a climate emergency, and here's why. Um, Jim, I think we're all concerned about what happens if our rhetoric gets too far out ahead from our actual ability to implement that, right? Do we have a, I hate to use this term, but a credibility gap uh, if we make this sort of declaratory statement? You had mentioned the, the definition, the textbook definition of emergency floods, tornadoes. Well, I think we are seeing precisely that throughout the state of Iowa, um, which is directly a result of this accelerating crisis. One of the reasons why we're talking about the IPCC, and, and there's, I think, some debate in terms of how urgent it is, but the question is, what is the actual time frame? Are we looking at 50 years, or are we looking at six, six years before we have a significant climate 
impact, the climate impact that is going to impact our state in ways that we could hardly imagine. On the other side of the state, we are seeing flooding that has never been seen before. Whole communities sub submerged. I, a friend of mine's father was totally displaced, and they were, um, I think, 20 miles from the Missouri River, and this is climate-related. The other thing is, is that the, um, the rhetoric, I think, is important because I think it will precipitate action. Um, I think we should also encourage every uh, city in the state of Iowa, as well as our legislature, legislators, to unshackle us to be able to um, do more significant energy efficiency uh, you know, requirements within our local municipality. Now, whether we want to get into whether it's a climate crisis or climate emergency, I would want to look more closely in terms of the IPCC, in terms of the language they use, in terms of, of this uh, language. But I think it is important. Um, and I think we are seeing something that we have not seen before. So I think we should. Um, we have the expertise here, I think, to make that happen. And I think, frankly, um, I have felt a lack of urgency in what we've done so far has not worked, it has not been sufficient, and I, I think we need to move forward with that declaratory statement. Finally, a lot of the great crises, social crises throughout history, usually once it's recognized, it does take time to actually implement it, but it's usually the people that make those declaratory statements early on that are the visionaries of the ones that make it happen. Um, the worst that could happen would be that we would fail um, and not meet these standards, but I, I, I don't think we can have that sort of attitude at this point. Um, with all due respect, Rockney, um, I believe that if we as a city declare a climate emergency, it, it will have little effect on, on the actual crisis itself that is indeed very real and a real threat to the health and well-being of our cities. But even the article we received uh, from Huffington Post about New York City said that declaring an emergency was largely symbolic, and that's what I would see it as. It's just, just a word. Merely making a declaration uh, does not solve the problem. Problem. Uh, as Brenda Nations uh, stated, this must be a community-wide endeavor, and what that means is educating everyone, and that means everyone, on what all members of the community can and need to do to, to cut carbon emissions. What do the rest think? Yeah, I think um, we're definitely, <laughs> we need to move with urgency. And I think, Rockney, you bring up, you know, the crisis versus the emergency, the rhetoric. It is important. But I hear what Pauline is saying as well, because we can declare an emergency, I think our ability it, it, you know, to really get there, it could be a little symbolic. And so we, I, don't, I definitely don't want you know, just to have something that's declared as an emergency and then we don't have all the tools in place to get there. Uh, the reason I asked about the 2050 plan is because I really believe beginning with the end in mind is where we need to be so that we can really um, try to figure out since there is a huge component of the, of the community to be a part of this, um, figure out how can we really space this out. So I know that we need to move with urgency. Uh, crisis versus an emergency. Um, I, can, I can go either way. I think crisis for me is probably more of the appropriate term right now in our ability to say that this is our plan forward. Um, 
because a lot of this does not have a lot to do with the with the 2025 or the 2030. Um, that doesn't have a lot to do with the community members. Um, and so I think if we were to really look at a 2050, you know, really incorporate a 2050 plan with a lot of the community members in there, then I think, yes, it needs to be seen as an emergency because we're going to have to really involve the community and their rhetoric can go far. If we have the rhetoric now and we don't have, um, we're not really pulling in the community and really going to make an impact, I feel like we can be, it can be very symbolic. And then in 2030, when we really need the, you know, the community to be pulled in, we've said, you know, climate emergency for, you know, forever. And now it's going to be, um, it, it, it won't have any, 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 any teeth to it. So she would lean more towards the crisis. Then? I think right now, because of where we are, I can take that. I would as well. Um, and while people are talking, I just had a curiosity kind of, I mean, I think all of us know what an emergency is. Yeah. But when you look up the definition of crisis, Merriam-Webster has it as the turning point, for better or worse, they talk about in an acute disease or fever, but I think you could talk about it in terms of the situation that we find ourselves. Um, a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. Um, decisive point, turning point. And I, I think... I think using the word emergency again, not to diminish the importance of this and, and moving more expeditiously to make changes, but I, I do think if you use the word emergency, people think, well, it's five years later, nothing's really happened. Yeah, the weather's a little bit worse. Why'd they call it an emergency? But I think if, if we have that um, methodical approach of this is a crisis and it is getting worse and we need to have that long-term plan like you're saying Bruce we have to find ways to engage the public and the community sooner rather than waiting till 2030 or whatever um, I think that that makes sense and I think is we just keep talking about the flooding and windstorms I I just came back from vacation in New England and I will tell you in the variation in weather was amazing. In one day, we had three significant thunderstorms, and in between, the sun was blue and sun was shining, and sky was blue and sun was shining. I mean, it was just beautiful. It was like you're getting these weird, really short, but significant heavy rains, high winds, and then they're gone. And so, totally different. And all my family members were talking about it. And so, and like you said, Rockney, the flooding, et cetera. So, but I think the crisis. Um, I think you can message that better with people and really start getting them on board that this isn't over tomorrow, but it's a long-term thing, but we've really got to start moving on it. I think that's the key thing. We have to demonstrate we're going to do more because things seem to have shifted. Things, it's, it's, I don't know, I wouldn't say that we've, we're now in the middle of a particular inflection point where suddenly things shifted, but, but uh we definitely face collectively a severe and negative future for human beings and for other living creatures if we collectively don't get a grip and actually take effective actions to reduce emissions and, and to reduce them at a pretty aggressive rate. So I, I personally am not a fan of using the word, the phrase climate emergency right now. I think that's a symbolic phrase that has resonance. But what really matters is the action. So I think we need to do more 
than what we have done so far, and we need to be as clear as we can to the staff about what more means and, and for us. Do you agree with crisis then? I'm okay with okay. crisis, yeah. So uh, the next question I would ask is whether the basically 45, uh, whether we should adopt more stringent emission reduction goals in accord with what's being recommended to us by the climate strikers and apparently by the, the 2018 report from the IPCCC, or is it IPPCC? <laughs> Get my letters confused. In other words, should we reduce, call for reducing our emissions by 45% as of the year 2030 and to zero by the year 2050? I think we should. Just get that out there. Uh, I think Brenda has said there is a pathway. <laughs> I, and that was, you know, a scenario, a hypothetical pathway, but it's possible that we could do that. We have to count on Mid-American, we have to count on the university, but we also need to focus on what more, on what we can do here, and I don't mean city government, altering city government activities as such and managing city bone buildings differently. That's important, but it's not enough. We, we have to have more community engagement, it seems to me. Uh, and so, well, but I don't want to monopolize that discussion. The question is, should we adopt a more, uh, a more aggressive emission reduction goal? I would agree, Jim. And again, getting back to, I don't want to give short thrift to symbolism. We're, we're going to talk about action. But if we do this, I think we will be the first community in the state of Iowa to adopt this standard. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and again, what I want to do is, is I want to project this to every city in the state of Iowa to do the same and have the collective action and to signal that we all are in this together. We're all on this great big planet Earth together. And, you know, I would only say without identifying the specific social movements, they all start and they all seem impossible. But it's small groups of people collectively declaring that they're going to do something about it. And then other people become inspired by those groups. And so I think we can do that. We have an enormous platform. And so I think we should. And as Brenda points out, it is a feasible solution. I mean, we can do it. It is, it is a possibility. So I think we should. I think we're, we're already, as you pointed out, uh, on our way to that 2025 goal, and, and that seems to be achievable. Uh, back in my day when I uh, worked with employees and had to um, establish goals, we had what we called RUMBA, R-U-M-B-A. Goals should be realistic, understandable, measurable, believable, and achievable. And I am having trouble seeing that 2050 of 100% as achievable. Uh, I would say it's more ambitious. The A would be ambitious. And it, it's so dependent on a lot of people that I think that that 100% figure might be just a little high, even I, though that's what's been recommended. I think, again, we need to see what the, you know, the 2050 um, would be for our community specifically, how to achieve that and, you know, the time frames of how we're going to really throw the 95.5% of our community between now and that 2050. Um, I think Rumba is a good, you know, example of um, how one can achieve a goal. But I also think that the basic is understanding um, 
what does that mean for individuals? So climate change for me, I can tell you before I, before I took on council, I heard the term, I kind of knew a little bit about it, but um, I didn't know much about it. And what does that mean for my house, you know? What, what do I need to do inside my house to you know, achieve climate change when you're talking new furnaces, new water heaters, all that type of stuff? What does that mean for business owners? You know, what can they do? Um, th these things come at a cost. And so I do think, you know, laying it out so that people, um, one, have information about what does that mean for them personally, um, but also, you know, doing that rumba so that, you know, from R to A, um, everything is laid out. So I guess for me, I, I do think that. I can't stress it enough, need to figure out what is that 2050? How do we get to that 100%? And I think that needs to be figured out now. My, my understanding and, and the little bit of looking into this that I've done since, since this issue has come up is that we, we have two, um, two tasks that we're looking at. One is, is the, the, the question of the declaration, which I think we sounds like we agree. We need to make that declaration uh, as an ordinance. And what I've seen in um, other cities that have made such declarations is they don't necessarily give percentages. I mean, they they will refer to the uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius that we cannot exceed. Uh, but in the in the declaration itself, they don't necessarily speak about we shall reach 45% by a certain date and 100% by 2050. What, what they have done is say, uh, in making this declaration, we would like staff to prepare a technical report in response to this declaration. And in that response will be the information that you're talking about. You know, that in certain sectors we shall achieve X percentage of CO2 reduction and you know for all the various sectors that that were included in Brenda's presentation so the the path to not exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius is revealed in the technical report I don't know that it needs to be revealed now um, I guess is what I'm trying to say how do we get there then, John? I mean, we get there through the through the technical report. The yeah. technical report is yeah. the pathway. Yeah. Uh, the resolution is saying we have a crisis. We shall not exceed. You know, in my draft that I prepared, it talked about you know what what some of the issues are, are that mm -hmm. need to be acknowledged now. That kind of lay the groundwork for. Uh, basically our response, this accelerated response, which is then articulated in much more detail uh, by the staff report, which will get into questions we've been asking and that, that Jim mentions. Do, do we have a coordinator? That should be, you know, we can express tonight whether we think that's a good idea or not, but I think ultimately it would end up in this technical report along with a much more detailed uh, expression of what that path shall be specific to Iowa City and the ways in which we need to, to meet the IPCC's recommendations. What do you think, Susan? Well, 
I guess, with due respect, John, I, I think we have to have a goal if we're going to lay out a path. I, I don't see how you, I mean, if you're going to tell people, you know, to to reduce your emissions in your house, you know, by X percent, you should, you know, you should, you know, turn your thermostat down so so many degrees or, or whatever. I mean, I think you have to give the individual and the individual homeowner really concrete ideas and information about how certain actions will make a difference. Otherwise, I think it's hard for people to know, you know, how, what do I need to do to do my part if I'm, you know, if I'm willing to. So I, I think we need to set that goal. I think it makes sense to go with IPCC's new recommended targets, um, at least as a starting point. And then I would agree with what you've talked about, Bruce, and, and kind of what you're referring to, John. I think what we need is a a more definitive road, you know, plan here in terms of the steps um, at the city level. What can individuals do? Um, you know, how much we're hoping to increase bus ridership? Um, how many, you know, miles per capita we'd like to decrease? You know, the use of cars. You know, those different kinds of things. You know, what does that mean in terms of, um, like we said, buildings are the biggest part of this. What does that mean to the individual? You know, like I say, as they set their thermostat in their home. You know, in terms of how much natural gas they use, um, you know, programs about you know turning off lights, using you know more efficient light bulbs, you know, all those different kinds of things. I think we can certainly talk about, as you asked the question earlier, Rockney, do we get to that point of incentives, uh -huh. you know, um, or programs like that where either tax abatements or other kinds of incentives for helping people, you know, make their homes more efficient. We're doing some of it, but is there uh -huh. a way of, of, you know, doing that even more? But I think to, to lay out those steps to help us really get there, we need to know where we're going. And so from that, I would, if we don't make it, at least we've tried. We're further along than we are now. Um, but I think what we've got to try and do is, is set that target, and then we have got to try to find steps that are as, quite frankly, as easy for people as possible. I hate to say that, but I think that's the reality of where people in this country are now. Mm -hmm. If it's too much work, they're not going to do it. So the more we can get those steps laid out now and try to show people with incremental change how they can do their part, then we have the best chance of success. Keep in mind that you know, Mid-American is not providing natural gas or electricity that we aren't using. So while we say a lot of it is on them, yes, it is in terms of the way they generate their electricity, but it is the demand that is driving that. Yep. So I would I would support uh, changing our recommend, recommended targets. Well, uh, has everybody spoken? I guess you have, right? So I, I would, too. I, I think, uh, it, to me, John, again, with due respect, I don't think it makes sense to uh, ask the staff put together a technical report without giving them some guidance about what we expect yeah. uh, that technical report will achieve. So I personally would favor adopting the, the stricter goals of 45 percent and zero. And, and for 2030, I think the gap's not that big. <laughs> it's pretty big when you get on farther down. Uh, 
beyond that, the, the crucial question then becomes, okay, so we, we, we'd have to make assumptions about what Mid-American's gonna achieve, assumptions about what the University of Iowa is gonna achieve. What's left? It's the what, what's left. Which of, of what's left, what can we influence? What can we control? And so, you know, then my mind starts going to the Climate Action Advisory Board. And if we directed them to focus attention on that in collaboration with the city staff, we could come up with the equivalent of a technical report. So along those lines, I want to toss out an idea because I don't know if it would be legal, and I'm curious. So we cannot adopt stricter energy standards for new buildings. This is the clear opinion. Could we require that any new residential or mixed-use developments requesting a rezoning must achieve a significantly higher energy efficiency than the state code currently requires? Now, there's a little ambiguity, a couple points there, but you get the general picture, right? Could we do that? Be like. If you would have to do a, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, you'd, you'd have to, as we did for, i give you the example of, you know, the riverfront crossings, affordable housing requirements, where we actually tied the, the um, increase, the, the increase in the density that they were achieving to the affordable housing requirement. I don't think you could just impose an energy conservation requirement on any rezoning. So then as a, twist on my question, I, I found myself wondering, could we mandate that n n new rezonings in Riverfront Crossings District m must include um, the achievement of more strict energy standards, which would have to be specified? Jim, I don't think you want me to give you that answer right now. Okay. I mean, <laughs> it's me talking. If you just want me to about. just off the cuff tell you what I think about that, I can do that. Fair but enough. I I don't think that's a okay. wise way to give a legal opinion. Fair enough. Yeah. So I'm articulating a hypothetical. I, I get it, but yeah. be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> right. Did did we get but, support for four though? First of all, to clarify on the IPCC. Sorry. I I think so. Did we? I, okay. One, two, three. Three. And then, John, are you supportive of that? I, I'm supportive of it. In fact, I think you okay. know the, the 1.5 Celsius. Implicit in that is changing the goals. We, you can't get there. So you support? I just want I, to make I do, sure I'm fine with that. Okay. Yeah. I, again, I'm just. Uh, I feel that there needs to be much greater articulation as we get into the technical report as to how we yeah. achieve that. Can I jump in real quick sure. on this on this idea of a technical report because the, the the plan provided that and and there's a lot of information available with the plan but then the staff uh, has an exceptional amount of more detail so we have the numbers on 
what's needed to get to those 2025 and those 2050 targets as they were in initially set. We can go through each of the actions and say, okay, for, for alternative fuels or electric vehicles, in order to meet our goal, we need 2% of vehicle miles traveled by 2025, and then by 2050, that's got to be 50% of vehicle miles traveled. And we can go through the various actions and provide that. That's, that's what we're using to, to guide ourselves as staff going through. That level of detail is not always suitable for the public-facing plan document, but I want to let you know that that's out there, and that was part of the plan that you all, you know, procured. Uh, yeah, but, uh, Jeff, uh, we, I, I take the point, and clearly it's true, but we also need to know what specifically we, we the staff, will be doing I to make that. sure that those steps are, are accomplished. It's not that... We need to reduce, I don't know, VMT by 2% or whatever it was you just said in general. We need to know how to do it, what we are going to do sure. to accomplish it. Right. And that's where I think the uh, Climate uh, uh, Advisory Board can help. And just as a parenthetical here, uh, the, the, the commission, I think, is going to recommend to us that they be transformed into a an official commission of, uh, of city government rather than be uh, an independent advisory board. And we'd have to specify what that commission's role would be. And, but it could be tightly tied to this point, I think. Can I mention one action that I would at least like to evaluate? This sure. may also be harder for staff to give us an off-the-cuff response. They certainly wouldn't want that. But I would like to consider um, and have staff further research um, citywide tax abatement for solar infrastructure on residential or in commercial um, construction. Uh, so at least I'd like to evaluate that or to see whether um, if the increased costs by virtue of higher standards, if someone wanted to opt into that, so they wouldn't have to, but if they wanted to take advantage of the incentive, they would have to apply the 2018 standard or whatever. It's hard to work out all the details today, but I would at least like to evaluate that because that strikes me as authority that we do have, um, and it would be citywide across the board, and everyone would be able to um, participate on so, that. So I'm going to set Jeff up here to actually uh, push a point that he and I have talked about. It's not really generating solar electricity mm -hmm. that we need. I mean, I, I favor it. I'd like to see a lot more of it. But it's not what we need. We need to replace natural gas. And to, the way to replace, na, replace natural gas is with heat pumps. And, I mean, our staff can tell us more. But maybe that's what we need tax abatement for or financial incentives for. They they may come up with additional things that, that would that they would look at, but but I, I would see that as an incentive, whether it's solar or anything else. It does strike me though that in terms of where we are with time, we should also have another work session to further flesh this stuff out. Um, but that would be something I'd like to evaluate. I, I mean, I think it makes sense to look at what incentives generally. I mean, the tax abatement may not be the, the right tool because of that requirement that you increase the value by 15%. Mm -hmm. I mean, you only get the abatement on the 15% on the increase in value. So I, I would look at it more generally as types of incentives. 
in your report, Brenda, you mentioned the um, grant for a fellow uh, that is helping with with this project, and it talked about engaging with community and students. Is that something part of their role, what they're doing now, or what, what exactly are they doing? Um, yes, our equity fellow is is looking at the extremes that the different uh, effects of climate that are going to have on our community, such as like uh, increased heat, increased pre precipitation, vector-borne diseases, and and things like that. Eight different things, and we're looking at what communities that's going to impact the most. And so, for instance, like for extreme heat, that's going to affect people who have to pay uh, more for air conditioning that might be burdensome or need. A heat center if they're homeless or something like that. So we're looking at both public health effects and other effects because um, I think most cities are seeing that it's those that are that are having the least impact on climate that are having the most impacted lives from that. And so we're looking at um, to get recommendations on what we can do for those in our community that are most impacted from climate change. Thank you. So what what. I've been thinking is that we, we really need someone who's responsible uh, for community engagement and outreach, whether that's a part-time person or perhaps there are grants, other grants out there, that because I know we've done the budget already, we'd have to try to find funds to, to fund that person. But I think that's important. I mean, Brenda has a job to do, and she can't be out there talking to all 70,000 of our community members. Uh, I, I think it would be important to, to consider that, think about hiring somebody to do that. What do the rest of you think about that? I think Pauline make a good point as far as um, Brenda's ability to really reach the masses <laughs> um, in a way. Um, I do think that maybe we might consider just earmarking um, some funds for a staff, whether and I'm not sure if that staff will be um, <laughs> in a year from now or two years from now starting, but just earmark them while the if the, if the commission is formed officially as a city commission, um, th that would already be a part of our plan to have a staff to do whatever is needed to reach the masses because it's gonna be, I mean, if we're gonna reach the community, we're gonna have to have boots on the ground, so to say. So um, I think that that is something that we should just contemplate um, for a staff of some type. Um, to be boots on the ground, essentially. I would suggest that we wait. We've got, I mean, we're going to do our first meeting on budget, hard to believe, in August. Yes. Um, as we talk about, you know, issues that we, as a, as a council, feel that staff needs to incorporate into next year's budget. Um, I, I know I've had a conversation with Jeff and city manager's office has been, you know, as they usually do in the spring and early summer meeting with uh, employees across the city, and this is not department heads, but boots on the ground employees. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments he mentioned was everybody is saying we need more staff. Sure. And these aren't, like I say, these aren't department heads. These are the people who are saying we need more help doing our day-to-day -day job. So I am very concerned that we sit up here tonight focused on one particular issue, no matter how important it is, and start 
making a preliminary decision about another staff person for this one area. I think we really need to wait until we're looking at the overall budget and all the needs across the city and figure out you know, how all of that works together and how we prioritize things. So, along those lines, what about, because I'm sort of viewing what we're doing today other than the crisis and then the IPC standard, that's sort of the decision that we've made. The rest of it in terms of action is a little bit for further investigation with staff. What about for staff to evaluate and identify what a full-time position would look like? And then to come back to us with a recommendation on that. Because I actually think you write every staff, you always talk about competing priorities, that's absolutely a valid point. Everyone has priorities for additional staff people. Um, but I do think if we're going to make this happen, and actually achieve these goals. We, a fellow, I love fellows, but they sound a little bit internish to me. Now, I love interns, but I don't think they're gonna get the job done. I think we do need to evaluate and explore a full-time position for, for implementing the plan. And we may decide that there are budget constrictions and, we, and, we, and it's not feasible, um, but I would rather the staff come back and say, okay, here's what a proposed thing would look like, and if you wanna do it, we would have to figure out when it would become operative and um, whether we want to move forward with that decision. I think you have to look, though, first even at the plan. It, I mean, I think as Bruce said, if we're going to have a goal for 2050 and we want to try and start getting those steps in place now so you know we don't hit 2040 and we're trying to do all this in 10 years. So if we start having this plan of these steps that we're going to be taking year by year and the improvements we need to make, I think that plan is going to help inform what we do or do not need for staff and what can or cannot be done by staff that we already have. Mm -hmm. So rather than going out and evaluating a staff person for this, I think you almost need to have the plan first and see what kind of um, staffing it's going to take to, to some of the early parts of this, maybe communication staff. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the first two or three years of this might really be giving our communication staff direction on working with Brenda and other people in the Climate Action Committee about the messaging that is going out. So, may, and I'm not saying that's what will happen, but I think you need the plan before you know if you really need a full-time person. Susan, on that point, uh, I think it's correct to say that the advisory board not only intends to recommend that we revamp it as a commission, but also has pretty clear ideas about the need for additional an additional staff person, and they have pretty clear ideas about what that staff person could do. Uh, I'd really like to wait on the, the, that particular question until we get a specific recommendation from the advisory board. Uh, and then that'll be, the sooner the better, because then it can be part of our budget discussion. We can have it in mind, at least, when we're doing our budget discussion. So I hope you all can get it to us uh, lickety-split, so to speak. I don't want to belabor the point, but um, I hear what you're saying, Susan. It's, I think we all get it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, city staff can be increased in various areas. Since we know that we're going to be doing something here, I think what I mentioned a second ago was just earmarking some funds. It doesn't really have to be labeled for staffing, but it could, because if it's gonna be informational, you know, there's gonna be things that, um, 
we just don't want to be going to the general fund for it, like just having some earmarked, maybe a little increase. But again, I don't think we need to figure that out. I think if there's four more that says, hey, Jeff, you kind of heard the conversation, is that something you all can present to us as far as like earmarking some funds for climate action, or if we already have some, which I think we do, just doing a small increase so that there are some funds just set aside for this specifically. Again, if we you know, get down the road and we need a staff, um, whether that's time to really create a new um, position within the uh, 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 budget um, projected or we have to you know, create something right in the moment, it'll give us a little money that's already earmarked for what we know will be, um, it's gonna be expensive to move forward with the climate action plan from the city, I believe, so. And I would just say, I think the time to set aside those funds is when we do the budgeting starting in August. Yes. Yeah, yeah but Bruce, my, my sense is that Jeff has heard this conversation pretty clearly. <laughs> yes. And, and has a sense of where the council is headed. Yes. And yes. we'll be able to share thoughts with yes. us about that. I think one thing that's important, what I listen for in these conversations are, are where's your emphasis? And what I hear from you and from the... Um, the community, the, the Climate Action Board, is is a, a different approach than, frankly, I was taking with the budget. And that's helpful for me to hear that, because when we went into this past budget, or again, we adopted this plan kind of midway through staff compiling the budget, my focus was on how do we move forward on that 4.5% of the slice, the city operations. And so we looked at things like waste and landfill. Uh, we looked at stormwater. We looked at our facilities department. And that's where you, you saw four new positions. And that's, that's a, a lot of what guided those positions. I'm just hearing a different focus from, from you all and from the community, um, and that's helpful. And that's your job, and, and that's why we have a climate action board. So what I can do is I can um, take what you've talked about up here and provide you some options for how to move forward in short term and uh, in the long term. Uh, and, and we could come back uh, you know, in the next month and, and give you some of those options on how do we shift that strategy to more of a community-focused approach to this as opposed to what I originally had set forth, which was very much a let's start with the internal, let's, let's get our own house in order, and then move out. And so I appreciate the input that we've heard, and I think we can, I think we can readjust accordingly. Does that sound reasonable to you folks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good, very excellent conversation. Uh, thanks, Brenda, for making the presentation. Jeff and Eleanor for Can I just ask inside. one question? Sure. Do you want us to go ahead and do what we need to do to get uh, the board set up as a, a formal uh, board? Well, I, I mean, you, you could begin preparations because we're going to get a formal recommendation from the commission, right? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. That was a consensus at one of our previous meeting. Yeah, so I, I didn't. Okay, I, wait till we get that recommendation and then. Yeah, but you can be thinking it. about it, you know. Oh, okay. And, and then, Mayor, some, some clarity on what you'd like for staff uh, going forward. Um, you talked about a declaration of a climate crisis. Do you want us to draft that? Do you want us to work off Councilman Thomas's draft? Do you all want to draft that resolution, I presume? And then in terms of the IPC standards, will that be addressed within that 
resolution, or would you like us to bring a separate, uh, basically update your your 2015 targeted goals? I would like to couple it with the IPCC, and then we could maybe work with John Thomas's draft, but that's what I would like. We can get additional feedback, yeah, too. Yeah, probably we don't need some of the items near the bottom of that draft, which we can't really discuss because we haven't had time to think about it. But but um, we could prepare a draft, I think, and spinning off of what you proposed tentatively. Okay, so what I, what I heard there is we can bring, at your next meeting, we'll bring uh, forward a resolution adopting the IPCC standards. Sorry, extra C in there. Um, and then separately, the council, some, some group of you will work on a resolution for the climate crisis declaration. Did I get that right? I think they, they, should, together. Be together. they should be together. Yeah, I'm sorry, you together? I together. They should be together. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, and who's going to work on? Yeah, that John, maybe you could just. What do you think? Could you work with staff on that? Because you've yeah, already got yeah, some, sure. the the first whereases. I don't know, four or five of them seem Those are reasonable. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a chance to even look at that. When yeah. when we get stuff dropped on Mondays, I yeah, I, I, I did I, I did the best I could. It. I didn't want to. Yeah, drop. I haven't even read it. So yeah, so it's it's just I think all that needs to be done is like. Part of it deleted, and then adding the, the the specific decision that we made with regard to um, the strengthening our goal. You, and do you want to see that at your work session next meeting, or just put it on the formal meeting in general? Well, don't you think it'd be good for the work session so we could just see it, and then maybe give some additional editing advice? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good deal. Let's move on. We have. Uh, Oh, look at that. Maybe 10 minutes we could spend. Clarification of agenda items. Well, I, I, uh, since there is a, a letter from Fred Meyer under correspondence over the... Um, is, it, is this an agenda item, John? Or is it that? Correspondence. Or it's in under correspondence. Okay. Um, 7 eight. I thought rather than wait any longer, I think there might be some people in the audience who are interested in this. Um, you know, I hope that we, this, this, is, this is regarding the question of what impacts the um, bicycle parking might have on Robert A. Lee Recreation Center and the uh, community garden on the north side of that building. And, and my hope is that we have two really valuable um, goals here or programs represented. We have our uh, expanding and improving our our bicycle networks and uh, the availability of bicycles in the downtown area. And we have an existing community garden which is valued by the community and conceivably could lose some of its integrity if the the bicycle parking were to proceed where it's currently proposed. So my, what I'm, what I'm asking for support here is that uh, we revisit where that bicycle parking would go so that we do not, in the process in gaining bicycle parking, end up um, impacting the integrity of the community garden. Do we know if staff has any 
different responses or? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, I don't know what's uh, obviously, we, are, we already need to increase our bike parking downtown. That's been a recognized need for several years now. And then we have the bike share that we expect to be launching in the next couple of months. So we start to look at where are the op opportunities um, to increase bike parking. And of course, you want them to be in spots that will be usable for the bike community. Um, when you're in the very core of the downtown, as you know, walking around downtown, there's not a whole lot of usable sidewalk space in the core. So you, you have to go out to the periphery to, to see what those expansion opportunities are. And this is one of the areas that we identified for a, a, an expansion. It's not going to. It's 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 not a huge deal to, to find an alternative location. Uh, so we can move on from this location if that's the consensus. It's just um, it's it can be a difficult task to to find the real estate in a congested downtown area already to add a lot of bike parking. So again, we do have other options, uh, and and if the council wants to preserve the cherry tree that's there, that's fine. We can do that, and we'll move on. I would support John. Um, you know, obviously, this is a this is sort of a conflict of two really good things that we all really care about. On the one hand, we're enhancing the bike infrastructure, which, which we love. But on the other hand, we have this incredibly dynamic, educational, growing space that is also very difficult to find in the downtown that we're losing more and more of, with a fruit tree that is literally bearing fruit. And it is the product of all this great work that has been done. Yeah, it's I'll, I'll eat right it afterwards, now. Blair. It's fruiting right now. Um, and so let's save that and I'll explore alternative locations. I think tonight we probably can't get into what those locations would be. Um, but I think staff can come back with a recommendation as to what that would be. Uh, and that would be my position. Yeah, I'd like to see what other options there might be. I would agree. You said we have other options. I would hope so. Oh, um, do you really want us to come back and give you options on where to put bike racks? I mean, I can just take your cue and say, okay, we won't we won't eat up well, any more green space. But I'm not sure you want to get into the process of approving everywhere we put a there. bike rack in town. I mean, my suggestion was that, um, if possible, staff meet with, um, and they may not need to meet with Fred. If we, if we agree that we're not going to impact the community garden, backyard abundance doesn't need to be involved. Um, but include the um, advisory committee or some representation of the bicycle community in the process. Uh, was So it's kind of a process-oriented thing. If, if, if the bicycle com community had not already been involved in this decision, include. Yeah. Okay. Is there, I think I'm hearing support for preserving, if you will, the cherry tree mm -hmm. and uh, looking for options. and. John's suggesting that we uh, that the staff include the bicycle advisory committee in that process. We're we're happy to do that. I just I just need to express though that as much as we love that input and we need that input, we make so many decisions on a day-to-day -day basis on these types of things. It is really not practical for us to to stop what we're doing and get input on every decision we make and move at a at the pace that I think that you all are wanting us to move at. So we, we hear it loud and clear not to get into the edible garden, and, and I'll take that to expand any, any green space that we have downtown, and that's a, a perfectly reasonable position. Uh, we're happy to update the Bicycle Advisory Committee and share those things, but if, if their approval is 
contingent on where we put bike racks, that bike share program is probably going to take a little bit, you know, we've already been trying to launch this thing for four years. It's going to take a little bit longer. Wow. Um, we have to shift these things around on a regular basis. I'm thinking right across the street from here, hopefully very soon, the Chauncey Swan Park is going to be open and available, and that's going to provide a lot of space, and, and I think that'll be a great opportunity uh, to place bicycle sure. space. Let's back off from having sure. the, the Bike Advisory Committee review this particular decision. Mm -hmm. Let's get some options, have the staff develop some options, choose which ones uh, th they want to follow through on. I mean, I, I take the point. I think uh, we can kind of get our hands too deeply into what staff is doing, and that can complicate things. Is that the way everyone feels? Yeah, I think we was set up a little bit of ground rules as Jeff laid out. Just be sensitive to um, you know the green spaces and move forward. Speaking of moving forward, it's 22. I think we're probably going to have to stop it unless somebody has any specific question about an agenda item that really matters for the agenda. It's a really short, simple agenda, but anything like that. Okay, if not, let's, uh, let's uh, adjourn our work session until after the formal meeting, and we'll talk about the information packets afterwards. Uh, we can pick up with the information packet discussion, and I know uh, at least one person, maybe two, have been waiting for us to discuss the trap-neuter return, uh, trap return community cats, pet shops, and puppies memo from... <laughs> From the city manager, this is so. This is information packet item number three, and staff needs council direction on this. I am in support of the trap neuter return program. Me too. I am too. I am as well. I definitely am. Mm -hmm. I just think there was so much good information evidence that this works. So mm -hmm. yeah, other communities, and I read somewhere that uh, you cat lover there that. Uh, uh, a feral cat might not show you love, but you, you can still love them, and you can see how uh, they uh, appreciate, like if you're feeding them or, or giving them shelter. So uh, they're good cats, too. And you'll still have all of the traditional tools as well. This just gives you more tools to be more humane to the population. Exactly. So, so I'm supportive. Anybody feel a need to say anything else? I'm really sorry y'all had to wait you know, for this. Thank but, you for waiting. Luckily for you, it's only 8.20. <laughs> I mean, hmm. yeah. What if we said no? 9.45 or something. So, so anyhow, there we go with that. Can we move to uh, any other item in that information packet? Well, there's the pet shops and puppies. It was oh, part of oh, that too, puppy mills, yeah. yes. I, oh, yeah. I'm really torn on this one. I am just super torn because everything I have read, the ag department does not do a good job of inspection. And when they do inspect, there's still a lot of these places that are really our puppy mills. I don't know how good a job our local pet store is doing on vetting those places. I, I can't pass judgment on that. Well, and Pauline and I have not gone up to Cedar Rapids yet either, so that's something we need on our agenda. We were going to report back okay. to the council just to okay. sort of see where they were. Okay. I, I share Let's your concerns. delay then on yeah, the cause Does that make, I, I, mean, I did not want to do a pet land. You know, they're obviously be the most affected by it until we get all of the facts, and I, and I don't think we've done that yet. Okay. Um, so we'll have to. Yep. 
Is that problematic from a staff point of view? There's no rush, is there? I should just, I have been in contact with the um, Cedar Rapids City Attorney and I know he's having discussions with the, um, the Humane Society folks. They have pretty different opinions about the preemption issue, so. Um, it raises the whole issue of House File 295, which was um, passed, if you remember, last year, which basically said cities um, can't um, adopt ordinances that set standards or requirements regarding the sale or marketing of consumer merchandise that's different than um, or in addition to state law, and cl clearly that was directed at plastic bags, but it is not, it's not how the provision is written, and, and it really opens a whole can of worms. I have not done a formal opinion yet, but that, se that uh, section makes it tough. I understand we're gonna get back to this um, topic, and I respect that. Um, one thing I will say is, when I spoke to some people that were not in um, that were in support of bans, um, a part of their rationale was um, nationally um, to the reviewers of of puppy mills, uh, they really cannot push um, greater conditions. Um, and so there so since they couldn't get anywhere with the national, they just thought, just ban it, um, you know, locally. And so that brush where, you know, there can be no national um, um, movement to local individuals and business owners, I just find that that is not the most appropriate tactic, although that tactic works for them to ban it in cities and not try to do it from a um, more of a standard of, um, uh, for site visits, so that didn't sit so well for me. The other thing is that um, when you're talking about um, banning in our community, then, and, and I did go to the uh, animal shelter here three times, um, three weeks in a row. Uh, the first time I went, there was only three dogs. The second time I went, there was no dogs. The third time I went, there was one dog. Of all those three times, there was only one puppy about one years old, and that dog was gone the next day. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, banning in our community, but where are people gonna get their animals if our animal shelter doesn't have enough? But even still, um, people are gonna have to go to other communities. I think it's, it, is, it is true that it is very beneficial for uh, individuals to see where their puppy actually comes from and that type of stuff. But the reality is is that um, I can be a puppy mill and I can show you what I wanna show you if you wanna come to my business and get a dog. So for me, I've not changed my position on, on I'm not going to support the puppy ban, the puppy mill ban, <laughs> um, but I do think that look at all of the things that do go into the decision of banning puppies in, in our community. So that's all I'll say for tonight, and we'll revisit this in the future. Okay. Anything else on that information packet? June the 20th.
about the June 27th packet? I'm just going to mention that we're in another 22 days, we're going to have that special joint work session with the Planning and Zoning Commission. And with Optico still, I guess they're still planning to come up, right? Just as an FYI, I probably will be doing that electronically. I'll mention IP number eight, which is an email from Judy Nyron, and I already referred to her just a few minutes ago. Uh, but uh, in uh, in her communication, she thanked us for what we and others in the city have done uh, to help their neighborhood and updating us on the Lucas Farm neighborhood. Uh, she, they're really doing well. Oh, they're really well. Really admirable to see. Anything else on that packet? Mayor, if I could just mention IP7, sure. it's a, a letter from Kirkwood Community College on a program that they are initiating to increase uh, ESL courses and tie them to employment opportunities. This is something that will probably come before you at some time, first to the EDC committee and then to the full council. I do think it's a program that uh, staff would recommend supporting financially. So if you didn't get a chance to look at that, uh, take a look at IP7. And if you'd like some additional information, uh, I can get that to you in advance of this item coming before you. Yeah, it looks to me like an excellent, excellent and much needed uh, um, effort. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess we can move on to updates about assigned boards, commissions, and committees. <laughs> we could start with you, Bruce, and move to the sure. right so that you can give it to Rockney. Yes, <laughs> you speak. and I have nothing to report. Um, nothing to report either. Other than going to the same meeting that, uh, or state of the downtown, I don't either on ICANN. Access Center has not met, and I was out of town for the JEC meeting last Friday, so. Okay, Pauline? Nothing. Wow, you people aren't doing anything. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> about meetings. Yeah, so Pauline, you mentioned that you and I will be meeting with Janet Godwin and Paul Rossler tomorrow in the afternoon, it's 4.30, right? Yeah, and the only other thing I'd mention is the Convention and Visitors Bureau Board. We met on June the 20th, talked about Fry Fest, the UCI World Cup, the arena, Eastside Sports Complex, and when we had that discussion, Josh Schamberger uh, uh, kind of said, He's actively working with other people to advocate for progress on the Eastside Sports Complex. He also provided a different topic. He also provided some more information about how much hotel, motel capacity has increased over the past very few years. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like, you know, kind of moving along and then <laughs> So he's obviously concerned about that as our owners and managers of existing hotels and motels. But, but I had a, a conversation with him about that recently, too, and for our benefit, he didn't see that increase hurting Iowa City as much because people want to be, want to stay downtown. Yeah, so yeah. That's I think we'll see higher, higher rate, higher utilization, higher, more nights rented or um, 
downtown Iowa City than maybe in some of the outlying areas. Yeah, so I think I should mention one other thing, uh, which has nothing to do with boards, commissions, et cetera. I th think uh, it was a two weeks ago in our meeting, I, in our work session, I mentioned that I had uh, received an inquiry from Mayor de Blasio from New York City about coming here, and I was going to give him a walking tour of the downtown. I got a phone call this afternoon asking if I could do that tomorrow afternoon. So we're, we're scheduled to do it at 3.30, from 3.30 to 4.30 tomorrow afternoon. We're going to meet here at the front of City Hall. And I, I want to make sure you all understand this. I've been very clear with them about how my position is a nonpartisan position and that I would be eager to guide any fellow mayor around our city and to uh, do the same thing with regard to any presidential candidate from either or uh, either of the parties or other parties for that matter we like to show our town off uh, i don't know if he'll be able to get here i mean he was he, he had to cancel out last time so maybe he will this time too we'll find out but i wanted to make sure you knew okay i think that's it so we're done for the night